Good morning, church. I'm excited to say, turn, please, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. It's exciting to be back into this book, this wonderful gospel. We've had such a rich study in it. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a story about a man named Ezekiel who happened to be an an Israeli but was not the Ezekiel from the Bible. This was a man who some 40 or 50 years ago was uh, one of the greatest generals in the Israeli army. He was very successful in his military career and was considered one of their master strategists. Now, intellectually, he was considered a genius. He was not only a successful general, but he was also uh, the chess champion of Israel and traveled the world internationally competing. He was also the grand master in bridge, which I didn't know you got that title if you were the best at bridge, but that's a pretty cool title, the grand master. And so he won competitions all over the world for that. So an impressive man. When he retired from the military service, Ezekiel went into business for himself and uh, in only a short amount of time, because of his abilities and his contacts, he became a, a multimillionaire, and so he had all this money and all this time on his hands now, and so Ezekiel decided to pick up a new game to master. Uh, he had done chess, he had done bridge, and so he decided to uh, pick up gambling. And so he began traveling the world, just like he did with chess and uh, bridge, to all these places where he could gamble, Las Vegas, Atlanta City, Monte Carlo, so on. And he would wage huge, or, uh, wage huge sums of money and lose up to like a million dollars a year. And that was the life he was living. In his 60s, he had a heart attack, and it almost killed him. And laying in his hospital bed, his wife came to him, and she told him, you cannot live like this anymore. You can't travel the world spending all this money and never being home. And So either you quit gambling, or I'm leaving you. And so, in kind of a good faith act, he said, okay, I'm going to quit. And he transferred all his assets, all his money and business assets and everything, into her name. as kind of accountability, and to protect himself from himself. Um, But sadly, even that was not enough. And so as soon as he got well and was able to, he just went right back into gambling. And his wife was true to her word and she divorced him and took all his assets, all his money. So he had very little left. With the little he did have left, he traveled to Atlantic City hoping he could make a little something. He ended up losing that. And so he had just a little, you know, a bit of cash left in his pocket. And, uh, and that's all he had left to his name. No business, no money, no wife, no respect or dignity anymore. And so he decided this is not a life worth living. And so he got a room in Trump Tower there in Atlantic City and decided he was going to go up onto the top of the tower and throw himself off. The day he woke up and determined to do that, he felt sick. And curiously, for a man who wanted to kill himself, he decided that he was too sick to go through with his suicide attempt. (laughs) And he ended up, started coughing up blood. And so he decided to go to the hospital. This is an interesting term of events. You're going to throw yourself off the top of a tower. You decide instead, I'm going to go to the hospital and try to save my life. So it tells you he was still conflicted inside. But guess what? On the way to the hospital, guess what happens to him? He got mugged. And so the little bit of cash he had left in his wallet, it's all taken. 
So he shows up at the hospital, he's sick, he has no money, he has no identification, they determine he's got pneumonia. They let him stay for about a week, and then he gets, you know, kind of gets a little bit better. They discharge him, and he's like, "Hey, I've got no wallet. I've got no identification. I've got no money. The only thing he had left was return trip uh, tickets to Israel that were for a, a flight 17 days later. That's all he had left." And he's like, asking the hospital people, "What can I do? Where can I go?" And I said, "Well, you could try the Atlantic City Rescue Mission." So here this great Israeli general, this genius, this chess champion, this bridge grand master, this wealthy, ex-wealthy entrepreneur, this international traveler, he lands up at all places at the Atlantic City Rescue Mission. Now, sidebar here, okay? Ezekiel was Jewish, born and raised. From the age of six on, he was systematically memorizing the Old Testament. He had huge swaths of it memorized. And then when he became a military leader, he decided that he was going to become an expert at the Old Testament because he wanted to master all of the the strategies and the wars that happened there because he felt like there was maybe divine inspiration for him in it as a strategist. And so the point is this man knew his Old Testament. And so he lands at the Atlantic City Rescue Mission where on the first day someone comes up to him and they say, hey, you look Jewish. And he said, I am. And they said, here's a Bible, read Matthew. So, having nothing else to do, he sat down and read Matthew straight through. And then he went back and read straight through it again. And he says, by the end of the second reading, he knew Jesus was the Messiah. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. So, if you came in here today wondering, given the opportunity, how would I evangelize a Jewish, brilliant, successful, entrepreneurial, military general who was the bridge master and chess champion? Well, if I was given that opportunity, what would I do? How about, here's a Bible, read Matthew. In fact, that's a good evangelistic strategy for anybody. Because there is a wonderfully powerful and simple way that scripture testifies to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And friends, we're picking back up Matthew, and that is exactly what we're doing here this morning. We are just looking at who is Jesus and what did he come doing? Because we just want to keep our eyes on Jesus. So we pick back up in Matthew, and we are ready for Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're going to spend the next eight weeks on these two chapters. And let me show you, I'm going to take a few minutes here to show you how these two fit together as a unit and how they fit into Matthew's gospel. So if you've got your Bible open, actually, I'd like you to turn back with me for a moment to chapter four. To the very end of chapter four, this is kind of where the action left off. We've been in narrative in between there, uh, but the action was back in chapter four, and Matthew sums up Jesus' ministry in verses 23 through 25. So follow along as I read them here. And he, being Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. 
So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So there you have it. This is Matthew's summary of Jesus' public ministry, right? He's preaching and he's healing. He's ministering in both word and in deed. And so then this is how Matthew unfolds the gospel from there, right? Right after this is chapters five through seven, which we spent all of last year studying, right? And that is what? What is chapters five through seven? The Sermon on the Mount, right. So Matthew gives us then a sample of Jesus' preaching ministry. Here is what his ministry of the word looked like, his teaching ministry looked like. And then, right after that, flip over to chapter eight. Now, Matthew gives us story after story after story on through chapter nine of Jesus performing miracles. He's healing the sick, he's stopping storms, he's casting out demons, he's raising people from the dead. It's three chapters of Jesus' word ministry, five, six, and seven, followed by two chapters of Jesus' deed ministry, his works. Matthew has shown us the words of Jesus and now he's gonna show us the works of Jesus. So that shows you a little bit about how these chapters all fit together. Matthew's just trying to show us, hey, this is what I said he was doing, let me show you what they look like in detail. Let me double click on them for you. Which means we've got some really exciting studies coming up over the next eight weeks. Like this is some really interesting things we're gonna be getting into. You know, the storms being stilled and, and the demonic and this week healings and so this is really fun stuff to be studying. All right, now, that being said, um, Let me show you how eight and nine then are structured because there's a structure at eight and eight and nine um, that is just interesting, I think. So how Matthew does eight and nine is he gives us three miracle stories, which we're gonna study today. These are followed by two descriptions of discipleship. And then he gives us three miracle stories again, followed by, guess what? Two descriptions of discipleship. And then comes, can you see a pattern yet? Three miracle stories. And then it gets to chapter 10 and it's the great call to discipleship. It's where he starts bringing in the, the 12 and the, and, the, and the others to be official disciples. So it's all drumming up towards that. These three miracle stories, after all this teaching, these three things are these three, uh, three stories and three sets of stories that show Jesus and his identity as the divine savior and people beginning to follow, okay, I wanna be his, I wanna not just follow him, I wanna be his disciple. So that's how these are organized here. Now, let me tell you then, okay, so what is the point of all this? What is the point of chapters eight and nine? If I had to sum it up, what's, the, what's Matthew getting at here? What's he wanna teach us in whole? I would say it's this. It's that Jesus possesses absolute authority in this world. Jesus possesses absolute authority. We're gonna see this again and again. In fact, if you look in your Bible at the way um, the Sermon on the Mount ended in chapter seven, verses 28 and 29, we read, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who, what? Had authority, and not as their scribes. 
So we've already been introduced to this theme of Jesus' unique authority, his unique authority in word ministry, and now we're gonna see his unique authority in deed ministry as well, with his authority over the diseases and over the demonic and over, um, the, um, over sin and over death, and so we're gonna see Jesus' unique authority in all his action as well. And so the bottom line for chapters eight and nine is Jesus possesses absolute authority in this world, therefore, we owe him our absolute allegiance. Jesus has absolute authority in this world. He is Lord of Lords, therefore we owe him our absolute allegiance. So that's what we're driving for in the next eight weeks in chapters eight and nine. And today we get to dig into verses one through 17 here, and the focus is on Jesus's authority over disease. So that's my title, Jesus' authority over disease, over ailments, sickness, infirmities, Jesus' authority over disease. And, and I'm gonna do this a little different today. Normally I read the passage at the beginning and then we exegete it throughout, but I'm just gonna take it story by story this week because we have three miracle stories to work through. And so let's just pray before we dive into God's word. Lord, we, please, we, pr- we pray that you would please bless now both the preaching and the hearing of your word. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, faith to believe. God, make us not just hearers of your words, but doers of it as well. We need you. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Illuminate our eyes and show us Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Three stories in these 17 verses. I've got three points to just follow along with them. The first point is this, Jesus's power over disease. Jesus's power over disease. And we wanna look at the first story. It's in verses one through four. Why don't you follow along now? When he, being Jesus, came down from the mountain where he was just teaching, right? Great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. All right, well, in our culture, uh, if Jesus is known at all, at all, Jesus is known as a teacher. And Jesus was a teacher. He spent, we just spent the last year studying his largest teaching. But Jesus was more than a teacher. He did so much more than a teacher. He exercised incredible power, just incredible power. And what we have to come to terms with is, is we simply cannot understand Jesus. We cannot understand who he is or what he came to do if we do not understand the power that he wielded, that it was divine power. Look again with me at verse two. We read, and behold, those are the words that get your attention, and behold, I want you to see something, lo, or in the vernacular, you're never gonna believe this. What happened? A leper came to him. The word there is a leper approached him. The guy came right up to Jesus, which in that day was unthinkable. 
Lepers didn't approach people. Lepers avoided people. But this one came to Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar, leprosy uh, is a skin disease. The Greek word is lepra, which comes from the word lepis, which means scale or scaly, and it has to do with the patches that kind of appear on your body when you get leprosy, uh, these patches on your skin. So leprosy is an infectious disease that thankfully is not around much anymore. But back in the ancient world, it was prevalent. For instance, Luke 4, verse 27 tells us there were many lepers in Israel. Many lepers. So it was, it was a lot more prevalent back then, and it's curable today, but obviously it wasn't curable back then, and that's why in the Old Testament, there were these guidelines given for those who had, um, who had leprosy. Uh, they, you know, how you were to examine them, and how you determine it, and then how they were, they were to live, and what they could and couldn't do, and if you want to read about those, they're in Le- Leviticus 13 and 14. For all you, you know, A-plus students out there who are like, oh, I want to read the guidelines for leprosy in Leviticus. Well, okay, chapter 13 and 14, if you're really interested. And they are interesting. In fact, I, I'll only share this one with you. This is kind of a sidebar. Sometimes you read things and you're like, oh, wow, that's fascinating, thinking about, you know, any relevance for our day or, I don't know, anything. You, you just, and so... Listen to this verse, listen to this restriction, this guideline, in light of COVID in our day. That's your heads up, okay? This is a total sidebar. This has really nothing to do with the Jesus thing that whole much, but I just thought, God's word is so interesting. Leviticus 13, 45 says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn cloths and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his lip, literally his mustache, and yell, unclean, unclean. So I read that and I thought, that's the ancient version of face masks. Isn't that interesting? No comment on face mask. I'm not trying to say yay or nay or anything like that, but it's interesting. Here it is, right? And so that is interesting because God knew what he was doing. They didn't know how it spread back then, but God knew that it spread through, spittle through, um, and, and so he, you had to cover your mouth and scream, unclean, unclean, unclean. And I read that and I thought, well, that's something we'd be thankful for through COVID. We never had to go around yelling, unclean, unclean, unclean. So that's something to be thankful for, right? Some of us can be thankful. You can be thankful for that. We can be thankful. We don't have to yell unclean. Okay, here, I'll give you another one. Okay, this is interesting. Now I'm totally off. So this is from the Talmud, which is not the Bible. This is Jewish tradition, Jewish teachings, right? That, But they said, if you got leprosy, then you had to stay away from people. You had to social distance, some might call it. Guess how, guess how many feet you had to stay away? Just guess. Six feet. What? Isn't that crazy? Okay, you don't seem very interested by that, but here, get this. I read these things, I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, it means nothing, but I just think it's interesting. Like, six feet has carried down through the ages, and here we are still doing it today. So, but get this, if it was a windy day, guess how many feet you had to stay away? Not none of you in the back can say you were in first service. Nice try. 18 feet. Someone said 12. Yeah, we had 12. In the, 150. Who can, I mean... Who knew, how windy does it have to be? How far, I would not even know how 150 feet, I don't know, anyway. So again, something we can be thankful for, yes? yes. Didn't have to say 150 feet away, all right. Humor aside. Humor aside, leprosy is a terrible disease. 
AIDS is a horrible disease. Um, it attacks the nervous system and it, it begins by developing these patches on your skin that are insensitive to pain. Um, and so it develops from there through the nervous system. It damages the nervous system. It causes paralysis. It causes blindness. It flattens your nose because the cartilage in your nose starts to deteriorate and, and kind of get brought back into your face. Um, it begins to attack the bone marrow in your body. And so then, again, your, your, your cartilage and, and your bone in your hands and in your feet and stuff start to break down. And, and they basically kind of get like swallowed back into your body. They just kind of like come in. Um, you also, you can't feel things. You're insensitive to pain. And so it's just very easy to touch hot things and not know that it's burning you or to step on something and cut your foot and not realize it. And you just walk around with a cut foot that gets infected or something like that. So... It's a horrible disease, and it's not really painful because you don't feel things, but it's just a degrading and physically, literally deteriorating disease. It's just the ugliest thing in the world. Um, my wife, Jenny, actually worked with and cared for lepers on a mission trip to India, and can just talk about how pitiful they are uh, in their brokenness. So it's a terrible disease, and everyone back then was just deathly afraid of it. Uh, everyone was afraid of getting it, and for good reason, it was very contagious back then, uh, not like it is today, it's, it's much less today. And so what they did was they kicked lepers out of populous places, right? So they got them out of the city or out of the camp, and they had to live in their own leper colonies away from everybody else. So here, this disease, it's physically debilitating. Your whole body is starting to fall apart, deteriorating, really. And then it's also, you're socially ostracized. You're not allowed to be around your family, your friends, or anybody like that anymore. But then on top of all that, you're ceremonially unclean as well designated by scripture to be ceremonially unclean, which means you couldn't attend worship at the temple, you couldn't bring your sacrifices, you couldn't join with God's, it's like you could never go to church. You couldn't be with God's people in God's presence. And it's a terrible lot. God had a purpose for it. God used it, right? In fact, mark this, if you're suffering, God always has a purpose in suffering. He always redeems it. He always uses it. You know, I think about Job. Job suffered, and God had a purpose. Job never knew what it was. He never found out about the spiritual warfare that was going on around, all around him that he was caught up in the middle of. But he knew there was a purpose. He trusted the purpose of God. God always has a purpose. And if you're suffering right now, or if you've suffered in your life, God has a purpose. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're afflicted. I don't know. I can't answer that, but I can assure you God has a purpose. And so, just like he had a purpose for those with leprosy. Leprosy was not what God wanted for anybody. God made this world without disease or sickness. It was sin that brought our sickness or brought sickness about. But God still found a purpose for that sickness. And so what he did in scripture was he used leprosy to illustrate sin. So just like marriage illustrates Jesus' marriage to his bride, the church, Leprosy illustrated sin. It was the most graphic way God could illustrate what sin was like. Sin defiles the body. Sin is ugly. Sin is loathsome. Sin is contagious and incurable. Sin separates and alienates us. Sin makes us outcasts from others that we love. So every leper not only had to live with this debilitating disease, social shunning, but then they had to walk around realizing that they were a living illustration of sin ceremonially unclean. Their life served a purpose, it served other people if people would have eyes to see and, and ears to hear, but 
What a wretched life to have to live. And so verse two, behold, lo, you're never going to believe what happened. A leper came to Jesus and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So he came right up to Jesus. No sense that he covered his mouth crying unclean, unclean. No sense that he stayed six feet away. He just came right up to Jesus. We find out within reach of Jesus. And you just wonder what the crowds are doing. You know, this parting for this guy coming through. Oh my goodness, get back, it's a leper. Ah, oh, we don't wanna get this. What might they have been doing? This was unheard of, this was unacceptable in this eyes. But this man came right up to Jesus. And in this, I see a man who is desperate in need. He's desperate and he knows he's desperate. He's got nothing to lose. He can't be with people. His body's falling apart. He can't come in the presence of God. So why not chance it with this Jesus guy? And it makes me think that that might describe some people here today. That maybe you are in a desperate situation. You know, leprosy represented sin. Maybe your sin has got you in a desperate place. And you've got no one left in your life and your life is a mess and you feel cut off from other people and you feel like, I don't know what else to do. Well, I've got nothing else. Maybe I can come to Jesus. And this, this story of this leper is to say, yeah, come, come to Jesus. This guy did, he went straight to Jesus because he wanted help more than he wanted anything else. And this is how you come to Jesus if you come to Jesus. Matthew says he came and he knelt before Jesus. He just came humbly. Like the old song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He just empty-handedly came to Jesus and knelt before him, kind of in a worshipful way, came down before Jesus Christ with nothing to worship him with except the need that he brought with him. He boldly approached Jesus, bowed before him, and made his request known to God. And I love how he said it. He said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. <laughs> there is so much packed into this. It's such a great way to come to Jesus. He says, first of all, if you will. If you will. Oh my goodness, he was so submissive to the sovereignty of God. I mean, here this guy has the debilitating disease. He's socially stunned. He's ceremonially unclean. He's a walking illustration of sin, and he does not come in accusing God. He does not come in complaining about God. He does not come in making demands of God. I mean, this guy gets it. He comes in and he says, your will be done. He says, Lord, if you will. And then get this, he says, if you will, you can. <laughs> The Greek is dynasi, which means can or able, but it comes from the word dynamis, which means power. He's saying, Lord, if you will, I know you have the power. You can do this. Friends, this is how faith comes to Jesus. We know Jesus is able, but we submit to his sovereign will. Faith says, I know that you can. I just don't know if you will, and I'm okay with what you decide. That's faith at its finest. It's an expression of trust. You are able to do it and I trust you with what you decide. And then verse three is just this wonderful expression of Jesus Christ. He says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. 
And immediately, I love that, immediately his leprosy was cleaned. Immediately. Friends, that's the power of Jesus Christ. The man was full of leprosy and immediately he was cleansed. Immediately he was healed. I mean, it's incredible power. Imagine that. I mean, if this guy had that nose that had shrunken in or if he had, you know, the parts of his limbs that had shrunk back in. I mean, imagine growing back out in that moment. Imagine, imagine his skin just clearing up all of a sudden. Like, I don't know if he felt Jesus' touch on him, but all of a sudden when Jesus said, I will be cleansed, all of a sudden feeling again that touch of a person on you. I mean, imagine the incredible power that Jesus is wielding in this. There is no problem that is too big for the shocking power of Jesus Christ. There is no disease too debilitating. There is no sin too ensnaring. There is no enemy too tough. Our Jesus has all the power. And friends, don't miss then that intimate detail that's mixed in. You have almighty Jesus Christ. You have strong and mighty Jesus Christ who is able to cleanse him immediately. And yet he does it in the most intimate way. He stretches out his hand and touches him. Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus could have just said the word. Jesus could have just said the word and he'd been cleansed. But it's so beautiful. He begins, he just, I mean, just imagine, to be, first of all, I mean, when was the last time someone had touched the man or who had touched the man and had felt it? Maybe they had touched him, maybe another leper had touched him, but they had not felt it. And Jesus touches him. Oh, gentle Jesus. He invites us to come to him. He is low and gentle of heart. So he touches the man, and then, and, and then even more significantly, by touching him, by stretching out and touching him, he's, he's taking on the man's uncleanliness. To touch someone who is unclean was to become unclean with them. And Jesus is, this, this is Jesus saying, listen, you're not alone in this. I will bear this burden with you. I will come down to your level and I will help you. I'm right there with you in this. And just like leprosy illustrates sin, Jesus' touch illustrates what he did on the cross. Listen friends, all of us here today, we all stand before God dirty. If you feel like your your life is a mess, you feel stained, you feel like, man, I'm such a crummy person. If people could see who I really am, well listen, We don't need to see who you really are. We can see who we really are. We're all stained. We're all dirty. And if you can't see that about yourself, you're blind. That's who we are in our sin. We are all stained by our sin. We are all living in the shame of it. I have things in my life. You have things in your life. We have things in our past and in our present that make us feel dirty and ashamed when we think about them. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I still struggle with this. I can't believe I gave in again. Sins that we struggle with or maybe even sins that were committed against us that make us feel tainted. And what happened on the cross is Jesus came down and touched us and said, I will bear that uncleanness. I'll take it into me, and you will be unclean no more. That's the power of Christ. He cleanses us of our sin. He cleanses us of our sin, and 
He has power over diseases. Power and authority, which we want to get to in just a second. But first, let me finish off verse four of this first story. Real fast, uh, we read Jesus telling the man, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I love this. Uh, it happens again and again in the Gospels. Jesus says, okay, I just did something miraculous, but don't tell anybody about it. And sometimes he has different reasons. He has different reasons in different settings for why he did that. Now, here's what I believe he's, he's wanting to have happen here. Here's the sense I get. Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want you to go telling everybody. First, I want you to go and submit to the law. I want you to carry out the law's requirements. You need to be examined by the priest. You need to bring certain sacrifices. I want you to do that because, here's what I think he's saying, I came to fulfill the law. We just saw this in Matthew. I came to fulfill it not to abolish it. I want you to fulfill the law because if you do, that law is going to testify to me as the healer that I am the one who not only fulfills it by obedience, I fulfill it by actually making those clean who are unclean, by making those healed who are actually diseased. I am the true fulfillment of the law. I do what the law can never do. D.A. Carson explains it like this. He says, in conforming to the law, the cured leper becomes the occasion for the law to confirm Jesus's authority as the healer who needs but to will the deed for it to be done. So I love that by submitting to the law, by having the man submit to the law, he gets the law to testify to himself. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. All right, so we need to move on to story number two because I took a long time on that one. Jesus's authority, this is point two, excuse me, point to Jesus' authority over disease. In the second story, it's Jesus' authority that's get focused on more than his power, and so we read it in verses five through 13. When he, being Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. He's talking about Israel there. While the sons of the kingdom... So he's saying the Gentiles will come from the east and from the west, but the sons of the kingdom who reject me will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment, immediately again. So here's this another incredible story. Uh, the first was about Jesus' power to cleanse the defiled. In this story, we see his authority to heal, but to heal the outcast. So that's the significant part of this, this story. It's Jesus' authority, and that it has to do with an outcast, a Gentile. This Roman centurion, he was a Gentile. He was 
not only a Gentile, but he was then uh, employed by Rome, who was the enemy of Israel, in fact, the occupier of Israel. This was the very kind of guy that the Jews believed the Messiah was coming to overthrow. And he has appealed to the Messiah for help, and the Messiah has said, I'm coming to help you. I'm coming to help, and I'm coming to heal. And when Jesus said that, he was throwing open the doors to his kingdom. He was saying, the unclean, yeah, they're welcome. The outcast, yeah, they're welcome. The opposition party, oh yeah, they're welcome. My kingdom is thrown wide open. But as soon as Jesus says that, that he will come, the centurion said to him, listen, you don't need to come, Jesus, because you're a man of authority who only needs to speak the word and it will be done which is an incredible statement of faith, especially on the lips of a Gentile. So incredible, we're told that Jesus marveled at it. Now there's only two times in the Bible we're told that Jesus marveled at something. Here, where he marvels at the faith of this Gentile, and then a second time in Mark 6, 6, he marvels at Israel's unbelief. Marvels at the faith of a Gentile, and he marvels at Israel's unbelief. What a contrast. Israel could see all these signs and wonders. They knew their Bible back and forth, you know, from front to, begin, to, to, to the end, and yet they could not come to faith in Jesus. But this man, this Gentile, who didn't grow up knowing about a, a Messiah or expecting one to come or anything, this Roman centurion, he becomes the model of faith. Jesus says, this is how you enter my kingdom, through faith like this man. And it's interesting, here we have these three miracle stories, and then didn't you notice, right in the middle of it, Jesus launches off into this thing about people coming to the table of Abraham to recline, and and then other people are gonna be cast into the outer darkness, into hell, and it's like, wait, why are we off onto this subject for a second, Jesus? What made you say that? It's interesting that this man's confession of faith, his recognition of Jesus' authority and lordship, becomes the occasion for Jesus to talk about those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. And it's because faith determines our destiny. Faith determines our eternal destiny. And when he saw this man's faith, he said, this brings me to the topic at hand, which is to talk about the kind of faith that will get you into heaven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter who you are. That's the point of this passage. If you come to Jesus Christ in faith, if you come believing he is Lord and Savior, that's what gets you into the kingdom in heaven. Believe in him and you will be saved. But then deny him, like the sons of the kingdom of Israel, like the Jews do. And Jesus is very honest about the consequences of denying him, about continuing in your rebellion instead of giving allegiance to Jesus Christ. He says, you will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, some people just cannot handle this teaching about Jesus. There are people here today who hear me saying this and they say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but Jesus would never do that to me. I mean, you're not thinking that. That's just your assumption. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, maybe he would do that, but he'd never do that to me. And I'm telling you, his word right here says, yes, he will. Because your faith is about your allegiance and you either align yourself with the king of kings or you don't. 
People like to think that Jesus is just always talking about love and being good and doing good things. But Jesus was very honest about the truth, that it is a fearful and a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and to incur his judgment for our sin. Hell is a place of eternal punishment and conscious torment for those who continue in their rebellion against God. Listen, Jesus is very open and honest about it. He preaches on it six times in Matthew's gospel. He wants us to know the consequences of our choice, but that was not the thrust of his ministry. The thrust of his ministry, the way Matthew sums it up, is that he preached a message of repentance. He wanted no one to perish in hell. He came to save. That was his heart and his mission and his ministry. Repent and believe and you will be saved. And so that's the call I make to you out of this passage today. On the authority of Jesus Christ, I can assure you, if you repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved immediately. It happens like that. All you have to do is renounce your sin and align yourself with Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't have to understand everything that he did on the cross. You don't have to understand everything about how the atonement works. All you have to do is believe in him and you will be saved. Jesus' power is power to save, and he saves immediately in response to faith. Jesus has power to save, Jesus has the authority to save, Jesus has power over disease, and Jesus has authority over disease as well, which is where we wanna land today. We've got one more place to go, one more story to see, so I'll make one more point that really flows out of his power and his authority. The third one is Jesus' triumph over disease. Jesus' triumph over disease. We see this in verses 14 through 17. Let's start with verse 14 and 15. This is the last story. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick. So Jesus saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve. So Jesus cleansed the defiled, he healed the outcast, and now finally here we see him restoring the marginalized, this woman undervalued in her community, in her culture. Jesus saw her value. He went up and he, he touched this mother-in-law lying sick in bed, and immediately the fever left her. I mean, you just see like the heart of Christ coming out in all these things. That the beginning of his ministry just targeted, outcast, defiled, and marginalized people. And that's who they bring up to the front and say, these are the people Jesus was after. <laughs> I just love it. I love it. I just love it. This is who Jesus' heart is for. Those who just feel like they don't have it all together. Those who just feel like their life is a mess. Those who just feel rejected. Jesus came for you. <laughs> it's great. Then Jesus concludes these three stories with these two verses, verse 16 and 17. The first tells us about how Jesus continued to exercise divine authority. That evening, verse 16, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Incredible power. Jesus is God. Jesus is God and he wields divine power. It's incredible. Then Matthew writes in verse 17, now this is his explanation of everything that just happened. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, quote, he took our illnesses 
and bore our diseases. So here is the point of all of this, Matthew is saying. This was to fulfill a messianic prophecy. That's why these, uh, these stories are being recounted for us and why Jesus did these healings. They were to fulfill a messianic prophecy, which is that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So this is a quote from, can anyone say? Who, what's this a quote from? Old Testament passage, anybody? You know, I have a hard time hearing it. Anybody, anybody? There was a major prophet. Isaiah chapter 53. All right, pretty good, most of you. Some of you got it wrong, but you know what? You actually tried, thank you. Others stayed quiet, so you get a gold point for trying. Gold point? Gold star and a point, and I put them together and you got a gold point. Why not? Gold points. Many of you know this prophecy. It's a very important one, predicting the death of the Messiah for his people, the suffering servant. And here's the part that Matthew's quoting from. Uh, it's it's chapter, or verse four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the part he quotes. Uh, Matthew says it differently. He, he's more literal. We'll get back to that in just a minute. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All right, so verse four there, keep that up on the overhead for a minute so everybody can see. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's the part Matthew is quoting when he says he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. It sounds a little different. Matthew's just being very literal. The words for griefs and sorrows have to do with the affliction you feel from sickness, and so Matthew's being very literal here, and he's saying, yeah, Jesus suffered to take our sicknesses. And then he goes down in verse five to say, with his wound, we are healed. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. With his wounds, we are healed. So here's the theological knot that we have to untie as we wind down this sermon. Let me ask you, this is a rhetorical question so you can't answer this out loud, because some of them I was asking was out loud. Here's the question. Are we guaranteed healing, physical healing, through the atonement, through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute. Are we guaranteed healing, physical healing, through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Is that what these passages teach us? Mentally put in your final answer. You can't call a friend. The answer, I would say, is yes. Absolutely yes. That's what both Isaiah and Matthew teach. The question, the question isn't whether healing comes through the atonement, but when healing comes through the atonement. When. The health, wealth, and prosperity teachers would argue that it is guaranteed to you now that it's something you can claim. For example, Joyce Meyer would teach you, quote, you can pray, Father, I believe it's your will that I be in health. I believe that by the stripes in Jesus, I am healed. Your word is health and life to my body, and it will accomplish that which you please and purpose. So by this, she wants to take this doctrine and she wants to say that you can claim it now. It's yours, guaranteed to you in the moment. 
And yet that is just not how we see this doctrine applied or used in the Bible. It's not how Paul used it and the many times he talked about how he was afflicted or other people he knew was sick. He wasn't saying, well, just claim your healing in Jesus. But instead he recognized that no, there are times when we are not healed, that we suffer under affliction and sickness. So here's what Isaiah and Matthew actually teach in light of, I'm saying, yes, there is a healing that comes to us through the atonement, but no, it's not like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teaches. Okay, so what is it? Well, here it is in in brief. All sickness is a result of sin. I don't mean that every time you're sick, it's because you specifically committed a sin that made you sick, but I'm saying that all sickness is a result of Adam's sin. All suffering, including sickness, entered into the world through the fall. So if Adam hadn't sinned, there'd be no sickness, but he did, and so there is. And so when the second Adam came, Jesus came, he came to fix the root problem. He came to die for our sin. And it's in this way that he bore our disease. Jesus shouldered our sickness in the sense, that's, what, that's what, exactly what Matthew says, he bore our illnesses, but he did so in the sense that he was punished for the sin that causes the sickness. So Jesus doesn't actually bear our cancer or our COVID or our stomach viruses on the cross. He bore the sin that causes them. And through this, Jesus laid the foundation for our ultimate healing and the annihilation of all diseases. This is what's going to occur with the resurrection of the body at Jesus' second coming. On that day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter five that this mortal body, I love this, will be swallowed up by life. That's a great thought of eternal life just kind of consuming our mortal bodies and oh, I've got this new body now, the eternal glorified body, just like Jesus Christ's own. And man, I cannot wait for that body. Anybody, can I get a witness? Yes. Amen. Now, I was telling some folks earlier, I, I took a, one of my kids on a, a special date this week, this past week, to one of those indoor trampoline places, and I got out there on those trampolines with, with her, and I was jumping, and I was trying to bounce everywhere, and then later that night, I was like, oh, man, that hurts. I'm, and the next day, I was kind of like, oh, I can't even sit well, and uh, so I was like, oh man, I'm aching for that, and I'm literally aching for that new body to come, and there's so many worse things in this world than achiness from trampolines, right? Like, one day, all our sicknesses, all our infirmities, there'll be no more suffering. Until then, we hurt, and we will get sick, and we're going to die. But on that glorious day when Jesus comes again, when the Savior appears, then shall come to pass the word of Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, what do we do with all this? Here's what we do with all this. We set our living hope on Jesus Christ and ultimately on the life that is to come. In this life, we'll still have trouble. In this life, we'll still have sickness and affliction and pain. But in the grand scheme of eternity, this life is but a blip. And we have eternity of restoration and redemption in Jesus Christ. 
So set your hope on Jesus Christ. That being said, there is something of that glorious day that is breaking into today. Jesus does give gifts of healing in this day. He does miraculously still heal people. It is an exercise of his divine power and it works through us as we pray for one another. And so not only should we set our hope on that glorious day, but for some of us, we need to raise our expectation that through prayer, the Lord may want to heal some of us today. We come much like the, the suffering leper did and we say, Lord, if you will, you can cleanse me. But we do come with our need and we ask humbly and submissively but boldly before the throne of grace. We know Jesus can do it. We don't know if Jesus will do it. But we have every reason to believe that those in need can come boldly before him and ask. We should never cease to pray for the sick to be healed. In fact, if you are sick, as Bert said earlier, we'd like to pray for you today, after the service, because Jesus still heals today. And he says, you have not because you ask not. And so we won't claim it, but we'll ask for it. We won't demand it, but we'll come boldly and say, would you please? And whatever healing we experience or witness in this life, we can take as a joyful reminder that it is just a foretaste of the consummate healing that is to come. So friends, whether it's now or later, here is our lot in this life. For all those in Jesus Christ, we dwell in the shelter of the Most High and we abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus has all power and authority and ultimately he triumphs over every disease. So, Give him your allegiance and follow him all your days and he will lead you into eternal life. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this wonderful account, these three beautiful, powerful stories of Jesus Christ and his authority over disease. Jesus, we praise you you are God, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega. It is by you that all things are held together and through you that all things came into existence. You wield divine power. There is none like you. And so we come like the leopard today, Lord, and just in our hearts we bow our knee before you. And we just begin by giving you the reverence due your name. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Jesus Christ Almighty. We praise you, Jesus, for your power and authority, and we praise you for your goodness that you came to us in our sickness and in our sinfulness, and you came to serve us. You came to bring us healing of diseases, but even more radically than that, the healing of our sin. Jesus Christ, we praise you not only as almighty God, but we praise you as merciful Savior. You are our only hope, and you are all our help, and so we put all our hope in you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.